Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me as usual is my good friend and co-host, Scott Hemingway. Say hello, Scott. Hello, Mike. Oh, Scott's upset because the Canucks lost tonight yeah, and they're out. Sad Scott is sad, but it was, it was a fun series. It was a fun uh, run for the Canucks. So. There you go. That Demko. How about that Demko? Good goalie. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. We strongly advise listener discretion. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadians chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Chomp, chomp, chomp. Listeners who feel they are in crisis can contact the Crisis Text Line in Canada by texting HOME to 686868. In the US or UK, text 741741. The service will match you with a volunteer counsellor who is supervised by a licensed, trained mental health professional. Crisis Text Line is free 24-7 support for those in crisis. For more information, go to crisistextline.ca in Canada or crisistextline.org globally. Let's get on with the show. On July 22, 2018, at 10 p.m., multiple people called 911 to report an active shooter on Danforth Avenue in Toronto. The gunman was walking westbound on Danforth with a handgun, and there were reports of people having been wounded by gunfire at multiple restaurants. After a brief shootout with police, the gunman killed himself with his pistol, a Smith & Wesson M&P 40 caliber. Despite heroic efforts to save their lives, 18-year-old Reese Fallon and 10-year-old Juliana Kozis died from gunshot wounds inflicted by the cowardly shooter, and 13 others were injured. Note, many of the details from this episode come from reports later released by Toronto's Police Service and Ontario's SIU, the Special Investigations Unit. Yeah, this is not something you hear about in Canada often. No. In recent times, anyways. You are listening to... Dark Poutine, episode 140, the 2018 Danforth shootings. Yeah, I do remember these ones. It's going to be another one, though, where as it subsides from the media's eyes, I become less aware of the conclusion. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it's time to learn. 
That same night, I was in Toronto, just on the other side of the city. That's right. I had driven halfway across the country back to Nova Scotia, and the day before, Carol had flown into Hamilton from Vancouver to accompany me for the rest of the drive Mm -hmm. east. We had crashed at Carol's cousin Andrea's place the night before. Then, after a day of mucking about in Hamilton, all three of us piled into our car, and we were off to the true crime event hosted by Christy Lee of the Canadian True Crime Podcast with hosts of other crime shows such as Jordan from Nighttime, Jack Luna from Dark Topic, and Robin Warder of The Trail Went Cold. Those are all some outstanding people, but I loves me some Robin Warder. Yeah. More so just because that's the only one I've actually met, but what a wonderful human being. After the event, I stayed to meet some of the 250 people who'd packed the hideout bar now closed at Bathurst and College. At the same time, Carol and Andrea went across the street to Sheba Ethiopian Restaurant. That's closed now, too. I joined them there, and we had a bite to eat. While we enjoyed our food and chatted about true crime, a real horror was unfolding six kilometers to the east in the Danforth Village neighborhood. Yeah, I forgot that you you were there as this was happening. Yeah. Yeah. A later SIU report describes the scene. Quote, Danforth Avenue is a street approximately 9.2 kilometers long and laid out in west-to-east orientation between Kingston Road and the Don Valley Parkway. On both the south and north sides of Danforth Avenue were many restaurants, stores, apartments, and businesses. The streets that ran perpendicular or north-south to Danforth Avenue were mainly residential streets with modest-sized homes. Starting from Pape Avenue on Danforth, the area was known as Greek Town. There were many restaurants along Danforth Avenue, which had outdoor patios that flanked onto the sidewalk along the avenue. So I was six kilometers away in almost a mirrored kind of area. It was exactly the same kind of setup where we were. One of the things that blew me away about Toronto when I went there was how there's almost a, a, a neighborhood for every community. Yeah. It was really quite, quite everywhere we'd walk. So, and this is Greek town and Koreatown. It was really neat. It was a warm but comfortable summer Sunday evening in Toronto. Families and friends were out and about at the many cafes and restaurants along the Danforth Strip. One of the groups consisted of eight friends out celebrating Nor Semier's 18th birthday. Among them was fun-loving Reese Fallon. Reese Fallon was born at the Toronto East General Hospital on January 31, 2000, to proud and thrilled parents Doug Fallon and Claudine de Beaumont. Reese was the middle of the three Fallon girls. She had an older sister named Riley and a little sister named Quinn. Only a month before that night, Reese had graduated from high school after attending Malvern Collegiate in Toronto. Reese was smart and politically active as a member of the Beaches East York Young Liberals. The responsible young woman was working at Loblaws to earn cash to help put herself through nursing school at McMaster University, where she was planning to go in the fall of 2018. Her family described her as strong and sassy. Everyone who knew her saw great things in Reese's future, but those things would not come to pass. Another example of just this outstanding human Mm -hmm. uh, taken away. It's just really sad, man, because 18 years old, too soon to leave this earth and sounds like an uh, i'm super proud of who she was even just for 18 years from a cbc news article quote the night of the celebration started with dinner at an italian restaurant downtown then they moved to greek town for gelato they were chatting at a nearby parquet when someone noticed a man across the street staring at them what's a parquet 
It's like a small park. Oh, okay. Near the Alexander the Great statue and fountain in the parkette near Danforth Avenue in Logan, at 9.56 p.m., this creepy guy was intensely <sighs> gawking at the teens enjoying each other's company. It was unsettling. The man was thin and bearded with dark hair. He was wearing long, dark pants, a black jacket, and he had a bag over his shoulder and on his hip. When the group looked over at him, he produced a pistol, pointed it at them, both arms outstretched, and began firing. When you see him pull it out, you're probably quite confused as to, okay, is this guy just trying to scare, like, do I run, or is this guy just trying to scare us and intimidate? Well, they ran. The young revelers scattered and fled for their lives, some going in different directions. A gunman's bullet smashed into Samantha Price's hip, dropping her to the ground. Others fell as well. The gunman targeted Reese Fallon, running back into the park, and shot her. She tripped and fell near a tree as a bullet slammed into her. The gunman sauntered over to where she lay, stood over Reese, and coldly executed her with three more shots. Oh, my God. All onlookers could do, Reese's friends and strangers alike, was watch as the whole nightmare unfolded. Many who'd hit the dirt had covered their heads with their hands, afraid to look anymore, and wondered if they were next. I can uh, picture doing that myself, just putting your head down and just hoping hoping to all hell it ends. Yeah, because if you run, you give the guy a target, right? Yeah. So you just play dead. I, I don't it's, know. It's, That's it's probably like, the best thing to do. It's like what we were talking about the other week when I saw somebody wanting to jump. Like you just, you think you know what you would do, but then when you're in that situation, mm-hmm. it's just so difficult because you think no matter what I do, if I run. But you are thinking about it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. If, if I run, that might scare him to shoot me. If I stay here, he might walk up and shoot me. Oh, God. The gunman then ran southwest across Danforth to the other side of the street, firing wherever he saw people, either on the road or in the many restaurants. There were seven people hit in the first volley of shots. Most, like Reese, were outside, but another of the wounded was hit by a bullet while in the Mazes restaurant located at 456 Danforth Avenue near the parkette. The volume of calls that came in 911 flooded the system, and some of the people calling in to report the shooting couldn't get through at all. Mm. That would be scary well, in itself. This is a major uh, hub in the city, and a lot of people, and you've got somebody walking down the street and shooting. <laughs> yeah, that's just going to, a flurry of phone you can't, calls and You confusion. can't plan for that amount no. of phone calls. No. The shooter continued to travel westbound on the north side of Danforth to the area of Dolce Gelato, at 414 Danforth Avenue. The young man continued westbound on the north sidewalk, discharging rounds as he walked. At one point, the gunman ran into a man of South Asian descent. The man said the gunman told him not to worry. I'm not going to shoot you. Oh, God. He continued walking slowly, making his way west, and stepped into the street and continued to fire. He then walked back to the north sidewalk to the area of the Papas Grill. The gunman then stood on the sidewalk directly in front of the grill. There he discharged numerous rounds into the restaurant, hitting one person inside. The gunman then fired shots through the front window of Demeter's Cafe. Inside Demeter's with her family was 10-year-old Juliana Kozis, an aspiring athlete and synchronized swimmer from Markham, Ontario. Juliana and her dad both received gunshot wounds. 10 years old. That's, that's Olivia right now. Out for ice cream. Yep. 
with yeah. her with her mom and dad and sis or brother and so far everybody that we've heard about was out just having a good time. Yeah, just graduated high school. Mm-hmm. Like they're just out ha- living their lives, fun, living their lives. Numerous spent casings lay scattered along a sidewalk of Danforth Avenue between Papa's Grill and Demeter's as the gunman continued on his rampage. Video surveillance showed the man passing 364 Danforth on the north side of the street in a westbound direction at approximately 10.01. He then crossed directly from 364 Danforth to the Second Cup Coffee Company at 355 Danforth. There he fired rounds into that shop. When he turned westbound again, he fired at three victims on the sidewalk, striking two before continuing walking west. When the shooter reached Bowdoin Street, he turned southbound. The southbound facing video surveillance from the Seven Numbers restaurant patio showed the man running along Bowdoin Street from Danforth Avenue. He ducked into an alley on his right. Surveillance footage from the back driveway of an address facing the alley captured him walking westbound through the laneway mm. at approximately 10.05. So this has been going on for 11 minutes already. Jesus Christ. It doesn't sound like a lot, but my God, that's a lot. He then returned eastbound 32 seconds later as there was no exit at the west end of the alley. He hadn't scoped it out very mm. well, so it was mm. a dead end. As he walked past the camera, he reloaded the firearm in his hand. You could see it. I've seen the video. Oh, really? Uh. He later fired on a witness who was on his phone with 911. He had followed him into the dead-end laneway, and so the guy turns and starts shooting at the guy who was talking to the cops. That's quite courageous. Thankfully, the gunman missed the man who then escaped unharmed. I actually don't think it was courageous at all. I think it was stupid because if you are following somebody who has a gun and you are a citizen, all you need to do is just say, I saw him turn in this alley and leave. From my perspective, he's trying to make sure that this gunman doesn't get away. He's trying to keep an eye on him. And, you know, he doesn't know it's a dead end. He's just thinking the guy's going through it and trying to keep an eye so he can tell the police where he is. Here, friends, if you see this, call the police and go the other direction. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm I'm running. Yeah. Personally, yeah, I'm running. Yeah, I was running, gonna, just going to say you would not be the person. No, I, I'd him. be running, but. <laughs> I think he was courageous. Uh, I don't. <laughs> the gunman then discharged rounds in the direction of the Seven Numbers restaurant, striking one person there. By this time, multiple police officers were arriving in the area. They were scouring alleys with flashlights and running up and down Danforth looking for the gunman. Their guns were drawn. At 10.06 p.m., a police vehicle traveling northbound on Bowdoin Street spotted the gunman running and firing northbound on Bowden, and he ran west onto Danforth until he disappeared behind the Danforth Church located at 60 Bowden Street at the southwest corner of Bowden and Danforth. Officers called shots fired over the radio and moved in to engage the suspect. One officer was in the area of Danforth and Logan helping people with injuries when he heard another's report of shots fired while attempting to apprehend the suspect. The officer then quickly drove to Bowdoin Street, and at 10.12 p.m., he saw the shooter's body on the sidewalk of Danforth Avenue, just west of Bowdoin Street. The gunman was lying on his back near the church, his feet facing toward Danforth and his head facing south toward the church. His legs were crossed and his arms were at his side. The man had a significant injury to the right side of his head. So that's terrible. A large pool of blood was forming on the concrete beneath him. As the officer approached the body, he observed a shell casing next to the man's head. 
An empty magazine was on the sidewalk, and a black handgun was still in the shooter's right hand. Mm. The gunman's ring and pinky finger were still around the grip of the gun. The officer disarmed the man who was no longer moving or breathing and searched the satchel around the shooter's left shoulder. Inside were three more loaded magazines. Oh, my God. At 10.12 p.m., the call came in over the radio. Suspect is down. Self-inflicted Danforth and Bowden in front of the church. At 10.14, a call came in that indicated a child needed an ambulance at Demeter's Cafe. This was Juliana Kozis. Juliana, in grave condition, was raced to Toronto Hospital for sick kids. Paramedics brought her dad, not as severely injured, to Juliana's bedside. The little girl succumbed to her wounds soon after. Other ambulances began arriving on the scene once the police declared it safe for them to do so. They, too, started treatment and transport of the multiple victims to nearby hospitals. I just can't understand humans like him. Like, oh, I think you have to be able to try to understand it in order to try to be able to prevent it. A 10-year-old fucking child. Like, my God. And and he came, he came well prepared. He had three more full clips. Yeah, he'd already gone through a couple. Yeah. So this guy, like, yeah. this wasn't a spur of the the officers on scene called in the emergency task force to check the body for explosives. By 10.49, they cleared it. He wasn't booby-trapped. Upon the arrival of SIU investigators on July 23, 2018, at approximately 1.45 a.m., Toronto Police Service secured Danforth Avenue from Pape to Broadway. As it is typical in TPS police-involved shootings, the SIU were the third party responsible for determining Mm -hmm. what had gone on. Mm -hmm. The whole incident had taken place over 16 minutes and over a distance of only 350 meters from where it began. Witnesses later described that the gunman was, quote, smiling as he was shooting. Holy shit. Just getting off, getting his rocks off. Feeling the power, right? There's nobody who should be getting any satisfaction from causing strangers. Unless you're sadistic. Well, exactly. Like, that's just walking around, shooting people, and enjoying it. Yeah. I I wish that hole in his head happened a lot earlier. On July 22nd, 2018, a Twitter user by the name of Styles posted a four-second cell phone video of the gunman walking quickly on the north side of the sidewalk of Danforth Avenue. In the video, he stops and fires his gun into a restaurant. At the three-second mark of the video, it appears the cell phone has dropped and the video becomes blurry. However, three distinct gunshots can be heard. And a little bit of a trigger warning because here is the audio from that particular video you can hear a young woman asking where the shots are coming from and then you'll you'll figure out the rest was it from that car and that's it that's the entire video but knowing the context it's just rattling because it's not just a guy out with his buddy shooting up into the air knowing that those shots were done with the intent to kill or maim. Yeah. Oh. And here it is again in case you missed it. It's so quick. Was it from that car? Yeah. Yeah. Just and, and knowing that. And in that instant, somebody's life could have ended. Well, and, and I probably at least out of one of those three bullets, somebody was probably hit. 
mm. hurts. And so knowing, like hearing those bullets and knowing that that may have entered somebody, like, oh my God. On Monday evening, the day after the shooting, police executed a search warrant on the apartment in a modest high-rise building in the Thorncliffe Park neighborhood that the suspect shared with his parents. Mm. Investigators grabbed boxes of evidence that might explain why this 29-year-old man, described as a loner, would have committed these shootings. I suspect there's going to be a trove of... Investigators seized multiple cell phones, laptops, electronic and data storage devices. Investigators also seized an empty gun box, AK-47 magazines loaded with bullets, and hundreds of rounds of loose and boxed ammunition. Jesus. In a variety of calibers. In addition, Glock, Ruger, and Winchester magazines and a soft rifle case and a trigger guard were also seized. There were multiple packages containing drug-like substances and a set of DVDs labeled with titles relating to conspiracy theories surrounding the September 11, 2001 attacks. Yeah, of course. The drug-like substances seized from the gunman's bedroom were analyzed by Health Canada. The beige powder was found to be heroin. Holy shit. The brown rock-like substance was MDA. Lighter white powder was determined to be phenacetin. Sounds right. An analgesic. The quantity and packaging the drugs were located in suggested the drugs were not for personal use. The toxicology report issued weeks later determined that the gunman had not been using these drugs. It followed then that he was dealing them. Hmm. So just an all-around sack of shit. Great person, yeah. yeah. Police worked with other law enforcement agencies in Canada, including RCMP and CSIS. Going through the background information, the suspect's experiences with mental health and his online activity. The gunman never applied, nor was granted a firearms license. Mm. The firearm he used in the shooting had come from the U.S. and was stolen months earlier from its registered owner. It is unknown how the man had come into possession of the pistol. On the day after the shooting... Chief Mark Saunders of the Toronto Police Service gave an update at a press conference. Thank you for your attendance. So with me is uh, Detective Sergeant Terry Brown from the Homicide Squad, as well as uh, Bonnie Levine, who uh, runs the victim services. Last night at about 10 p.m., the Toronto Police responded to the area of Danforth and Logan with regards to a shooting incident. As a result, as you know, two people have uh, succumbed to the injuries. We do not know why this has happened yet. The investigation itself is very fluid. Um, It is very new. It's going to take some time. And because of that, I'm certainly not going to invite any type of speculation. I just am not in the comfort zone of doing that. Um, So I'm asking for your support and patience at this time. I can tell you that as we have things unfold, we will definitely provide you with whatever we can at that moment. And just in closing, uh, just dealing with logistics right now, we do have Danforth closed at this uh, time. It is going to be uh, some time before we release it, but I just want everyone to be aware that we are doing absolutely everything that we possibly can to release that scene, um, having understanding that the most important thing is that we capture all the evidence that is necessary uh, with regards to finding out all of the answers to all of the questions, but rest assured, it is a priority for us to, uh, to release the scene, to allow Danforth to open up again, and to be uh, open for business and to have traffic flow and all those other things that have affected the community uh, so that uh, we can get things back and restored to where they are. 
And uh, there are some complexities to it um, right now. Uh, working with the SIU, they have invoked their mandate, making sure that we have an appreciation of that oversight. We welcome that oversight, um, but we also want to make sure that we don't step over any lines that might compromise that aspect of the investigation as well. Um, so um, there are a lot of moving parts to this. And the most important thing is that this is early right now, and hopefully uh, as time and as evidence unfolds, we have an opportunity to provide uh, further information to you. I really like Mark Saunders. Yeah. He's just retiring now and sort of under a bit of a cloud with the uh, couple of things that have gone on in Toronto recently mm. with the woman who fell from oh, her yes. balcony. Yes. People didn't feel that he reacted well to that. Mm. However, Surrey is looking for a, a chief of police. And I'm wondering if he's one of the people on the list. Is Surrey really looking for a chief of police? Absolutely oh, we really? are. Oh. Yeah, because mm. uh, we're moving from RCMP to, to city police. Local, yeah. Yeah, so there's an experienced one who's just about to come on the market. And Torontonians may disagree with me, but I really like the cut of this guy's jib. He seems like a pretty cool police chief mm -hmm. and really level-headed and keeping things on an even keel in that particular all I know of him is what I just heard and what I just heard uh, I like. He was very, um, he was in control of what's happening. He seemed empathetic. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know enough of him to qualify anything, but uh, yeah, he handled that press conference well. Yeah, he was very measured in his yes, responses. Yes. Yeah. And we'll take a break right here. When we return, we'll dig further into this creep's background. One thing we won't be saying, as is our practice in this type of episode, is the gunman's name. And we're back. So what's your take so far, Scott? Well, I hate this guy. Mm -hmm. um, these lone gunmen, these domestic terrorists, there are some people we've covered where I wouldn't say I empathize with them, but I can kind of, okay, I can, I can understand how this person's brain may have cracked or was abused their whole life or their, by their husband. But um, to, to do this, I, I have nothing but uh, disgust. Well, we're going to learn a lot about this guy. Good, because I, I want to... Because they really, really dug in and, oh, uh, and they released a report about him. And I don't think the report, it, it's long, but I don't think it actually gives the whole story. I think they were holding back some information that we'll get into later. Oh, fascinating. It came out soon after the rampage uh, that police had actually arrested the gunman only two days before. What? He was caught shoplifting. Police attended and later released him. Yeah, okay, shoplifting. Yeah, not a big deal. Uh, you don't know what's on the guy's mind. Absolutely not. And you, yeah. you know, uh, somebody's arrested for shoplifting unless it's like their 30th time. You're, you're not going to be going to check their home and, you yep. know, getting warrants and stuff. So Police were familiar with him and we'll get into that yeah. as well. People recognized the gunman from him walking around in his neighborhood. He had no friends to speak of and was not close to his family. He preferred to sequester himself alone in his bedroom playing video games on, or just farting around on his computer. Yep. On the afternoon, just hours before the shooting spree, the gunman's brother had told him to get his life together. The young man called himself, quote, mentally retarded in response to his brother's pleas. So if I'm reading, hearing that correctly, the brother was saying, get your life together. And he was responding with, I'm mentally retarded. Yes. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He was making excuses for himself. Yeah. From the SIU director's report on case number 18, TCD 220, released on January 7th, 2019. On July 24, 2018, at approximately 10 a.m., a post-mortem autopsy on the shooter's body was performed at the CFS. On August 10, 2018, a post-mortem report was received, and the following is a summary of the report based on the July 24th autopsy. Major findings at the autopsy were found in the head. A contact gunshot wound of entrance was present in the right temple. There was a muzzle stamp present on the wound. CT imaging of the head showed a bullet wound track through the brain. An exit wound was present in the left parietal convexity. So, boom. Out right the back. Yeah, yeah. The wound path was from right to left, front to back, and upward. The bullet fragments were not retained in the head and the bullet exited the head. Based on the wound track, the wound necessarily traversed the brain. This injury would have been essentially immediately incapacitating and fatal. The contact nature of the entry wound and its presence at the site of election, the right temple where it went in, were features often observed with self-inflicted gunshot wounds, and there was no evidence of significant injuries to the body. So, What a coward. I'm going to go and create havoc in hundreds of lives. Because if the trickle down of the sure. victims, I'm going to go wreak havoc in hundreds of lives. And then I'm going to go take the easy, I'm not going to be accountable for what I've done. I'm just no. going to just shoot myself. Ugh. The creation of the report included interviews of 15 key civilian witnesses and nine police officers who were in attendance that night. They poured over hours of surveillance footage from businesses, residences, and emergency vehicles hundreds of photos, written witness statements, and hundreds of pages of transcripts of 911 and police radio calls. Mm-hmm. The report removed any questions about the officers at the scene of the gunman's death, absolving them of any criminal responsibility. The director wrote, quote, I am simply unable to find any evidence that a police officer committed a criminal offense in relation to the gunman's death. Instead, I believe that the man who decided to kill himself rather than surrender to police and find police officer number one and police officer number two uh, find their use of force was entirely appropriate in the circumstances. Accordingly, no charges will issue and the file will be closed. So there you go. That's what happens when there's a police-involved shooting. They actually, if a person, a civilian, dies and the police have been there using their weapon or not, they still have to go through this whole process to see, A, who shot him, yep. and B, whether or not it was illegal. And criminal or, yeah, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. which is great. When it came to light that the gunman was of Middle Eastern heritage, the racist right-wing cranks came out of the woodwork. Yeah, yeah, God damn it, I loathe yeah. them. There's a couple of websites, you can look them up yeah. afterward, and I'm not going to mention them because they don't deserve it. But they go into how he was affiliated with ISIS and all this kind of stuff. There is absolutely 100% zero proof of that. Yeah. Zero. Yeah. Yeah. They glean on to anything they can to support the racist narrative. Well, yeah, because that's what they do. Because they're not so bright. Not They're Nazi bright. <laughs> oh, no, you didn't. <laughs> oh, jeez. Yeah. <laughs> The findings of Toronto Police Service's report on the shootings released on June 21st, 2019, almost a year after the shooting, 
did give a brief history of the gunman's life leading up to the shootings and insight into the state of his mind. But there were no direct links to terrorism and no manifestos. Well, don't let that get in the way of uh, those right-wing idiots. Uh, yeah, because they're going to say it anyway. don't let Don't let the facts interfere. Yeah. So much of the following is summarized or verbatim from the Toronto Police Services report. And I kept laughing to myself because Toronto Police Services shortened as TPS. I, yeah, exactly. But the first time you mentioned it, it's exactly where my brain went. Yeah, so I'm not making fun of the situation, just the fact that yeah. there is a TPS report. Yeah, and you can't not think of office space. That's right. School records outline the future gunman's continuous struggle to function in a classroom setting. It was difficult to associate age with the school grade as he was absent from school in Canada for grades one, two, and seven, mm. attending classes overseas. In addition... He was unable to complete his high school credits on any consistent schedule. He graduated with his Ontario Secondary School Diploma in 2010 at the age of 21. Yeah. So he was 21 when he graduated high school. Yeah. His marks throughout high school were terrible, and he barely passed. In the fourth grade, his behavior and performance led to an Identification Placement and Review Committee assessment that found that the future gunman had secondary behavioral issues and placed him in the upper end of the intellectual deficiency range. Mm, okay. He was also considered to have a weak awareness of, quote, life information and to have poor verbal and spatial reasoning skills. An individual education plan was developed. However, he remained in the age-appropriate classroom with a resource program to manage his behavior. So they didn't fail him or keep him back. They, they kept provided him, resources right. to help him stay in the grades. At least early on, they yeah. did, yeah. yeah. As he got older, he was very disruptive in class and spoke regularly and enthusiastically about gangs, weapons, and being tough. Concerns about his affiliation with dangerous people began to emerge when he attended school with multiple $20 bills. He was overheard saying that he did not need a job because he had, quote, found a better way. It was suspected that he may be involved in theft, drug dealing, or some other crime. He regularly missed or was late for class. He drew pictures in class instead of doing his work or made excuses to leave class to avoid work. The images he drew were violent, including one of a male beheading a female with accolades from a demon character. Fascinating. He also spoke about how he admired the way the Columbine shooter had earned respect with his actions. Oh, God, that's never... If you ever hear somebody talking about uh, those shooters in mm -hmm. a respectful way, back away from this person, exclude them from your life. But here he is, and this is in high school, so 2008, 2009, 2010, yeah. Yeah. and he's already talking about men yeah, beheading women, women yeah. kind of thing, so... Yep. We had definitely issues. Um, Women. With, yeah. In 2010, the man was referred to the TDSB, the Toronto District School Board, Social Work Department, to help deal with his reported self-harming behavior, anger issues, anxiety, peer relations, sibling rivalry, and suicidal ideation. He told the social worker that he did not talk to his parents and did not have friends or a girlfriend. He reported having anxiety about the future and had feelings of overwhelming sadness, pessimism, hopelessness, and failure. Teachers reported that he had difficulty with trust and was quick to react to perceived threats, which were not real. His anger appeared to be triggered when he felt powerless. 
On June 3, 2010, a second risk assessment was conducted. This request was made to address the concerns about comments the future gunman made in May 2010. He told a teacher that he had a surprise for staff on the last day of school. He mentioned the attacks on September 11, 2001. The young man went on to describe a rape scene. Oh, my God. When staff asked him if he was going to hurt others, he said, quote, I can't tell you. Oh, my God. The assessment was missing from his file. That same month, he was brought to a hospital as a result of him cutting his face during class with a pencil sharpener. He was assessed and released. Holy shit. This guy is, was not well. No, no, clearly. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, he's... Yeah, he was uh, he was clearly suffering from something. I struggle when hearing these stories come up because I empathize with that. But I have to separate in my mind. I'm empathizing with that individual at that age in regards to their mental illness and mm -hmm. separating that from who they are now or were. So like... Because I, I start to feel some, some empathy, and then I'm like, no, I shouldn't. He's a piece of shit. On June 16, 2010, the young man was brought to a hospital by police. He had been apprehended at school after he'd taken a steak knife from a teacher, said he was the joker, and refused to return the knife. Mm. During this assessment, he was diagnosed as having antisocial personality disorder. He did not fulfill the criteria for having a developmental disability. He told a physician that he had a long history of violent and aggressive behavior. This behavior included the torturing and killing of animals. Mm, shit. He advised that he felt no remorse for these acts. His thoughts contained fantasies about violent behavior that would please him. However, he denied suicidal or homicidal thoughts. Oh, those are terrifying and terrible thoughts. Yeah. Oh. That summer and fall, he bounced around to different mental health providers until a complete report by a psychiatrist on November 23, 2010. He told the physician that if he could give advice to young people, it would be to do all the, quote, things they wanted to do before they turned 18. He felt like a failure because he wanted to, quote, do something criminal. <sighs> but he realized he was over 18 and could not. He did not see criminal activity as a viable lifestyle for him. He was prescribed Celexa, but reported taking only one pill because it made him feel nauseated. Like, if anybody needed medication, it's this cat. Yeah. yeah. He was a mixed-up kid. And for anybody out there who is prescribed meds and isn't jazzed about it, don't make your determination off of one pill. It takes a while for these things to actually yeah, start just to take work. Them. Just do what the doctor says. Do what said. the doctor says. The young man saw doctors regarding his mental health at least 34 times over the next two years. Oh, wow. On September 26, 2011, he told a physician he had lied about, quote, thinking like a bad person. He also reported having mood swings, not wanting to leave the house, not eating, being confused, depressed, and not caring about his own well-being. He was prescribed Celexa and Cymbalta to assist with his symptoms. Doesn't say whether or not he took them. Mm -hmm. During this time, he overreacted to rescheduled appointments, saying that it showed that the caregiver did not care about him. He reported self-cutting to cope with the stress of the change. Yeah, this, this man is absolutely unwell. There, he's spiraling as well. You can see it getting worse there, over there's, time. There's clear indications of depression and anxiety, but this, this is far beyond... Well, yeah, something else is going on. Yeah. Plus, he's been already been diagnosed as an antisocial personality. Yeah. 
On February 15, 2012, the young man called police from a park and reported that he had a knife and was going to kill himself. Officers arrived to find him in possession of the knife. He had facial lacerations and said that he had been depressed for several years. He told the officer he was seeing a psychiatrist. The man was apprehended and taken to a hospital. Notes from this visit indicated that he reported that his violent behavior had begun at a young age with torturing animals. He denied having suicidal tendencies at the time of this visit. He indicated that he had been cutting since 2010 as a form of relief. So repeatedly... uh it looks like there are so many opportunities to yeah. intervene in yeah. this young man's life. But he keeps saying he's not suicidal. Right. And the Charter of Rights in Canada, yeah. unless there is a really good reason to, to hold somebody against their will, yep. it's not going to happen. Yeah, they have to be a, a, a threat to themselves, mm-hmm. an immediate threat to themselves or others. And which there he are, was, but how do you diagnose that? That's the challenge, you know. And, and there are other criteria that you can't, but it, yeah, it's very, you can't just be like, ah, this person seems off. I'm, I'm locking him up. Well, he was definitely behaving like he was off. For sure. But you, you, there are certain criteria in order to forcibly keep somebody institutionalized. Also in 2012, the man developed an addiction to the powerful painkiller hydrocodone. Oh. He was going from doctor to doctor, lying to get his prescription renewed even before the last round of pills had run out. In May, he was referred to an addiction program to deal with his pill problem. Mm -hmm. During one of his sessions with a mental health professional, the man invited the physician to his home to play video games. Interesting. The mental health physician explained that that could not happen. Mm. The man began cutting his wrist during the session. (sighs) He said he cut as a way of determining if his medical team really cared about him. He wanted to get people to go to extraordinary lengths to show they cared about him. So, okay, well, there's an opportunity if I'm a mental health professional and you, during our meeting, are slicing your wrists. That sounds like an immediate threat to yourself. Right. Like, I don't like... But he he then followed it up by saying he just did it to see what the guy would do. Definitely somebody who knows how to manipulate the system. In 2013, the man was referred to another hospital for yet another psychiatric evaluation as the result of a reported suicidal ideation. Mm -hmm. During this time, he also reported that people gave him strange looks when he went out. So he was starting to project his inside feelings outside people's faces. Yeah, yeah. In November 2014, the man said he no longer wanted further referrals for medical treatment. A mental health professional suggested that his family doctor refer him to a forensic psychiatrist, but there are no records located of this occurring. Hmm. So ends any mental health care he received. Over the next four years, his thoughts darkened, and he became obsessed with murder. Jeez, that's not what you want to hear. Investigators were able to access the gunman's Facebook page. He had posts and images on his Facebook account dating back to 2012. He had not posted general content since 2016. Mm. His posted images were of demons, a Nazi soldier walking along a line of women in a camp, posters from A Clockwork Orange, The Godfather, Sopranos, and The Joker. His favorite movies were listed as A Clockwork Orange, The Godfather, The Sopranos, and The Joker. He's got good taste in shows and movies. but The man had a cellular phone account in the name Alex DeLarge. <laughs> That's the main character in the Anthony Burgess A Clockwork Orange book Mm -hmm. and 
the subsequent Stanley Kubrick movie. His cellular phone records were obtained for the dates of July 15th to July 25th, 2018, and during that time, the man made and received 93 calls and registered messages. His cellular, cellular phone only had contact or attempted contact with three phone numbers. Between July 17th and 19th, the gunman's phone attempted to contact the same phone number on nine separate occasions. Mm. The calls ranged between three and six seconds, so there was likely little to no contact. Investigators were unable to find any link between the registered owner of this phone number and the shooting that occurred on July 22nd. So That's mind-blowing. Like, what? Because you're not just going to call a random number. There was a connection between him and the man. Yeah, but they couldn't. They 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 couldn't establish inconsequential any, of right. the incident that right. happened. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. Police discovered that the shooter had had three cell phones in total, two of which did not seem to belong to him, as his main line was listed as the only contact in both of the others, which is weird. Uh-huh. Let's break that down for a minute. Here's what I thought was happening: If he's a drug dealer, yep, maybe he gives a cell phone to the guy who's going to pick up drugs for him or something, buy or sell or do something for him. Yeah, and the only number in his phone, in that burner phone yeah. that he gives the guy, is his own. Yeah, that's a good call. Uh, I forgot the drugs that were in his home. And so, yeah, if you've got multiple phones and you're a drug dealer, I think you're spot on. There's That's the reason why you have them. There were six audio files of a voice believed to belong to the gunman. He was rehearsing lines spoken by the Joker during a Batman movie. The lines involved discussions of death and plans for killing large groups of people. So he's just pretending to be the Joker. He he wasn't saying, I am going to go and kill large numbers of people. He is playing playing the Joker saying that he is to do that. He used the email address Alex Delarge underscore 187 at whatever email provider to communicate. Most of the emails located in the file were junk mail and social media updates. An intelligence analyst reviewed the account and did not locate any emails of significance. It appeared that he purchased and sold figurine-like toys on Kijiji. He liked Star Wars. Oh. He also took Uber rides to the hospital. Okay. Yeah. All right. The cellular phone had audio clips from The Dark Knight and Scarface movies. In a file named Note to Self Original Audio, there was a two-second file of a male voice saying, Toronto Gang. Weird. In a file named Note to Self Original Audio 3, there was a two-second file of a male voice saying, Columbine Documentary. So he's recording notes to himself, probably like, oh, remember to watch that Columbine. Exactly. Uh, There was a 56-second audio file recorded on June 27, 2017, of what sounded like a medical professional discussing the medical condition of a third party. So was he at, like, a doctor's office and just recording something? he's probably overhearing a conversation. And he just decided to record it. Maybe he thought they were talking about him, and he's like, oh, I'm going to record this and listen back. Could be. Oddly, and maybe the most telling, there was a four-second audio file of a male voice saying, Elliot Roger Golf Course. There was also a record of the open source searches conducted using this device. One search was listed as Elliot Roger Manifesto Video Recorded at Golf Course. And for those of you who know who Elliot Roger was, he's like 
the incel hero. He, yeah, he's their uh, messiah. He's their he's the incel Jesus. I guess. Yeah, and, and just the biggest piece of shit. Anytime I've seen his videos or anything to do with him, you just like I. I'm, I just cringe. I, I'm not trying to be an asshole. Not that I'm trying to not be an asshole towards Elliot Roger, but you just watch and you go, you are an absolute loser. You're the problem. The reason why people don't want to be with you because you're a fucking loser. Right. And we'll get into that. A significant amount of the document files located on the phone were academic articles on psychopathy, personality disorders, violent crimes, homicidal ideation, the effects of physical attractiveness on perceptions of mental illness and mm. intimate relationships of psychopaths. The phone also contained a full copy of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorder, the mm. DSM, yep. and other documents on mental illness. There were six more documents related to, without conscience, UBC professor Robert Hare's book about psychopaths, which I have read and I recommend very highly. Mm -hmm a copy of Mein Kampf, which I have not read and won't, and a copy of the Elliot Rogers story. Enough of this, dick. The phone also contained a 300-page book from manhoodacademy.com. Oh, my God. Called, quote, The Principles That Govern Social Interaction. Oh. This book outlined how to use male authority in relationships with women. That sentence alone is disgusting enough. Right. The phone also contains a 150-page book titled The Tao of Badness, which outlines how to, quote, be a complete badass and pick up women, end quote. So the fact that you're having to look these things up should be a huge indicator as to why you're alone. Mm -hmm. Like, how about treat people with respect and equals... The bits of evidence taken all together, they do point in that direction. Yeah. Although there's no information I could find that the gunman was involved with the incel subculture on the internet, it might have been withheld in those reports. Yeah. Was he an incel? I mean... Let's make uh, sure everybody knows what an incel is first. Oh, so for those who are unaware, from a terribly unreliable source called the Urban Dictionary, an incel is an involuntarily celibate person usually male, who has a horrible personality and treats women like sexual objects and thinks his lack of sex life comes from being, quote, ugly, when it's really just his blatant sexism and terrible attitude. Bingo. Incels have little to no self-awareness. Even when they see other, quote, ugly men with girlfriends, they consider these men to be tricksters who have somehow beat the system and can get women despite being cursed with unattractiveness. In other words, they're respectful to women, and women are attracted to their personalities, but incels can't comprehend such a phenomenon. They believe that women owe them sex, and many of the more extreme incels like to spend time in incel communities on the internet, coming up with ways to make women have sex with them, often involving genocide of people of color, genocide of chads, those are men who have sex, mm. taking rights away from women, raping them, having sex with women's dead bodies, and other horrid, disgusting things. They can't understand that is precisely why women want nothing to do with them. And that's why I included that Urban Dictionary yep. quotation, yep. because that is what you were going to say. <laughs> That, that is, it, it, uh, exactly. Uh, men out there, 
listening, if you think women owe you anything, yeah, get some fucking help. Yeah, they don't owe you a goddamn thing. No, this incel thing. I, I just look at it and I'm just like, how ridiculously blind are these twits? It, it's exactly uh, what you just said. Like, how blind are like because it is clear as day. To Those any- girls don't like me. They don't know what they're what yeah. they're like. Are well, you serious? Like, like first off, again, they don't have to like you. So they first, there's number one, and just so glaringly obvious yeah. as to why probably people don't like them, but yet it's so oblivious to them why they don't. It's that inability. Mm. to look at how your behavior is interacting is impacting how others interact with you it's narcissism 100 percent. spot on a year after the shootings families and friends and residents of the danforth neighborhood got together to commemorate the victims both the ones that had survived and the two who had passed here's some global news audio from that day Every day is one more day since I've seen her, so it just keeps getting harder. The younger sister of Reese Fallon, killed while out celebrating a friend's birthday on the Danforth, describes her feelings. Personally, with me, I think like right now has been the hardest time because it's like all, it's not just been like a year of healing. It's been like a year since I've seen her. Fallon was 18 years old, had just graduated high school with plans to head off to university to study nursing. She was my best friend, very close with her. So it's been a hard year without her. And Cheryl Fallon explains the grief is no less today than it was the day she learned her niece had died. I'm still in disbelief. I still wake up every day in disbelief. It's hard just to to deal with and to know that this is the one year anniversary. To me, it doesn't like it doesn't seem like a year ago. In the midst of war, I choose peace. A ceremony was held Sunday to commemorate the lives lost on the Danforth when a gunman went on a shooting rampage. Juliana Cozes, age 10. The second victim, out with family on July 22nd last year for ice cream on the Danforth. The message today is to show solidarity, to show community, to show that we still care and we still love each other. But many in the community say time has yet to heal the emotional wounds of last summer's violent attack. It was shocking to the community when it happened and still we feel... We still feel the, the aftershocks of that. People have either lived here, grown up here, had family who lives here, or they just come here to be entertained. And that's why it was such a, 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 an epic tragedy. Jeanette Dowson invited neighbours and strangers alike to draw chalk messages to help express their emotions. My hope is that as a community we'll, we will continue to engage uh, with uh, the discussion around gun violence, around mental health issues. Quinn Fallon prefers not to think about the night her sister was killed. The more I think about the night, it's just like the more hard it is. Instead, she clings to small symbols that help keep her sister's memory alive. These earrings that are angel wings, and then Juliana's family got these for me. Karen Lieberman, Global News. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks to COVID-19 this year, remembrance of the events had to be held privately. Yeah. And that's it for this week's case. What a loathsome piece of garbage yeah, that guy Yeah, you was. know, anytime incels or incel-minded individuals come up, I just get so pissed off at them. And I think it's because, like, for, for, for the folks listening, uh, 
I'm not speaking for Mike, I'm speaking for myself, but I've, I lived a lonely youth. I was not swimming in partners. I was not like, um, uh, what one would consider a mover and a shaker. No, I spent a lot of time alone and I spent a lot of time damaging relationships because of insecurities. And so I've been that lonely person wondering why nobody likes them. But you know what I did? I looked at, uh, you know what, I need to take some time off here and I need to look at what I'm doing to constantly have this happen. Because you were too. Yeah, I was, an ins- I was a very insecure human being who uh, I would have dumped me. Yeah. I would have dumped me if in, in my were youth. Were you a little needy? Oh, a little is not the word I would use. Oh, boy. Yeah. But so like it's, I think I get pissed off because it's like, I think a lot of us can relate to mm. that. Oh, why don't the people I admire like me back? But at some point you got to say, well, shit, maybe I play a role in this and look into it. These fuckers just want to continue to, bl- nope, they're the problem. Women are the problem. Uh, let's go wreak havoc. Losers. Yeah, like I said, that's it for this week's case. Uh, I guess it's time for some voicemails. You can leave us one at one eight seven seven three two seven five seven eight six, or one eight seven seven D A R K P T N. And if your call stands out, you might hear it on the show. Now well, let's listen. Let's have a listen to yeah, some of these uh, these here voicemail. A little listeny poo. A listeny poo to the voicemaily poos. It's <laughs> a lot of poos. There's lots. A lot of poos. There may be. Uh, I don't know. And there might be some poo. Well, I mean, we are often told to shit in our hats. Um, yeah, people often do uh, tell us to do that, which is kind of sad. But yeah, well, we kind of told them to. Yeah. Okay. Let's listen to this one. <laughs> Hey, Mike and Scott. My name is Tegan, and I'm a longtime listener and huge fan. I'm calling from Savory Island, BC. Um, although the island is quite small, it has its own dark history. I don't want to give too much away, so I would recommend looking up the legend of Jack Green, and hopefully you will do a podcast on this story. It takes place in the late, teen, the late 1800s and involves murder, a manhunt up and down the B.C. coast, and a search for treasure. Uh, if you're interested, Jack, oh, sorry, Ian Kennedy, Sunny Sandy Savory, A History of Savory Island, 1792 to 1992, would be a great resource. Anyways, take care. Bye-bye. Well, thanks. Now I have to go read. You had me at treasure. Yeah, I like My treasure. God, a local treasure to be found, Mike? Um, yeah, we can go dig a big, we've talked about this before, but the minute it it involves like walking uphill or being outside in the rain, it's probably not going to happen. I'm hoping for one day technology is at a point where I can still do that from my couch. (laughs) Fair enough. Uh, let's give this one a shot. It looks like uh, it might be a local one. Oh. Hey guys, I'm a... New listener, I'm originally from the Lower Mainland, grew up in the Okanagan, and now live in northern Ontario. And I just finished listening to the Heather Thomas episode, and I knew Shane Erbold. My uh, cousins and I were in a car club with him uh, before he moved to the coast. And he was a strange dude. Anyways... Thought I'd uh, throw that in there. I was kind of shocked to hear his name. I was like, "Oh man, I totally remember that now." So anyhow, take a poop in your toque. Eh? 
I'm going right now in my toque. I'm always not surprised when somebody calls in and says one of our uh, former episode, the the perpetrators in the yeah. former episode was a as a dink. Yeah, yeah. No, never surprised. <laughs> not surprised in the slightest. No. <laughs> Thank you so much. Interesting that you still have a a BC phone number, but anyway, I'm not going to say it because <laughs> I'm not that much of a tool. But anyway, uh, let's go with one more. Hello, Mike. Hello, Scott. Jason here, former Blue Noser, now calling from St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, fellas, love the podcast. I was a little late to the game, but I picked you up at about episode 30-ish. Uh, real nice to see a, a Canadian podcast doing well and well-deserved. Fellas, I hope you have a lot of success. Keep doing all the away games. My wife, who's an American, is really enjoying those just to have a little change of pace. Uh, but, fellas, I hope you have a great day. Keep up the good work. And as always, go shit in your hats. Later, boys. Well, that was just a sweet message. Well, yeah, Blue Noser. Yeah. So, so one of my people. Yeah, so got to be nice. Yeah. 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 Well, that was re- I'm really, really. The- your voicemail put a smile on my face. That it was put, really kind it, of you. Put a sm- and, a, and a poop in our toques. Yeah. Well, that one I could have lived without. But, well, you know, you know. The smile on my face. I'm not going in yours. You can poop in your yeah, own. Yeah. There's no. It's like crossing streams. Oh, gosh. Um, yeah, let's, let's listen to just one more. Sure, why not? This one looks like another one from BC, but, uh, it seems like that is pretty much everybody this week, but no, no, that's not true. Uh, yeah, let's give this one a go. Yeah. (laughs) Hi there. I'm just listening to your podcast today regarding the Marple, um, killings, how horrific that is. Uh, but I also wanted to just thank you for uh, using the term twat waffle. We really don't use that term quite as enough uh, as we could, but um, I, I almost choked on my tea there when <laughs> listening to that. But uh, thank you again for uh, creating such a great podcast and also um, for portraying the, the victims in, in a in a in a light. It's not exploitive. It's 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 storytelling. Um, so thank you. All right. Uh, thank you. Bye. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, that was just, uh, we certainly try our damnedest to not be exploitive. Well, I do, I do. Scott doesn't. Well, I don't, I don't know. I don't ever make fun of a victim or, yeah, sure. uh, I, you know, I think, uh, Alyssa Lamb is the best example, but, um. Yeah, thank you. That was very kind. Lots of kind ones. There you go. They're always kind, but these ones just tickled my heart. <laughs> Do they? Yeah, and my fart. Tickle your farts. Yeah. No. Somebody had to. Typical country weather, they say. What? No, never mind. <laughs> it's the it's, it's a punchline to a joke, and I'm not going to say the rest Okay. Of it. Yeah, I guess it's time for some Patreon shout-outs. Oh, yeah. Okay, first up, we have... Oh boy, let's see. Rosa. Oh. From Coburg, Ontario. Oh. And what does Rosa do in Coburg? Uh, oh, what Rosa does is she uh, hand weaves, some would say crochets. I like to say hand weaves. Roses. She makes roses with crochet. And then doesn't sell them or give them to anybody. She just she hoards just has them. A house full. Yeah, it's it's really that's odd. It's it's a and she's got a large house, but she can only use one room because of all of the crocheted roses. Oh, well, yeah, maybe I don't know. Maybe 
ditch a few hundred thousand? <laughs> Is there that many? Well, yeah. Wow. Next we have Logan Boyer, and Logan's from Chardon, Ohio. Oh, Chardon, Ohio. Well, what does Logan do? In Chardon? In Chardon, yeah. Uh, um, works on an assembly line making John Deere tractors. Well, okay. Yeah. Wow, that's very specific. It is very specific. Yep. Wow. Yeah. It's a good, it's unionized, you know, makes a good living. Good benefits. Good benefits. Especially there in the U.S., you want the medical benefits. Yeah, Logan's been doing it for 37 years. There you go. So, or you know, he's got a good, comfortable life, wonderful family. Great. Everything's great for Logan. Well, thanks, Logan. Yeah, thank you. Uh, next we have Summer Rowe. Okay. And I don't know where Summer is from. You don't? No. Oh, I certainly do. Where? Uh, Summer, Summer is from... Uh, yeah, I have a tough time pronouncing all these names, Mike. But yeah, I, I know Avora, uh, 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 Avora, yeah, okay, Avora in the Cook Islands. In the Cook Islands, yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, that sounds like a nice place. That's near Australia, isn't it? It is. Yes, it is. It's very hot in the Cook Islands. Mm. That's why they call it the Cook Islands because you, when you're there, you're going to cook. So, so what does summer do? Oh, uh, oddly enough, in the hot Cook Islands, she operates an ice rink. Outdoor ice rink. That doesn't make any sense at all. No, it does. It makes sense. Mm. You just have to really like crank up the coldness, like oh. the, the thermometer or whatever, and to make that get that ice cold. Uh, it's quite the hub. People like to go ice skating in uh, the Cook Islands. There you go. Yeah. Next, we have Lisa. Oh, hi, Lisa. Lisa from Stony Creek, Ontario. Oh. Oh, it looks like she has a last name too, Lisa Montero from oh. Stony Creek. Oh, that that helps me even more narrow down. Okay, and what yeah. what does she do in Stony Creek? She is a brick mason. Oh, so you went with the stone thing. Well, I mean, as there's quite often people's jobs are related to the name of where they live, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so she's just following suit and uh, moved there when she was 27. And I was like, what am I going to do? Like, I'm making this big change in my life. Like, I, I left my, uh, I was a lawyer mm -hmm. back back home. Oh. And I left that, and I moved out here on a whim. What am I going to do now here in Stony Creek? Oh, oh wait a minute. Oh, I guess that's how Stone, it Stone, I'm going to become a bricklayer. I would have sold weed. Oh, well. <laughs> That's Stoner Creek. Too bad you weren't there to help her with this decision guess, making maybe. early on. But yeah, well, she's a bricklayer, really, doing really well, doing really well, laying the bricks. So next up from uh, Powell River, British Columbia, oh. we have Lisa Rublitz, or is it Rublitz? I'm not entirely I sure. I think it would be Rublitz. Rublitz? Yeah, I think okay. So. Yeah. And uh, what does Lisa do in Powell River? Oh, Lisa... Uh, hand cars canoes wow i know have you ever done that nope uh, not no. once oh i thought i would have taken you as a canoe carver huh. no weird. Yeah, okay. not a thing that i'm into hmm, weird. i like it, the birch bark oh that's good i just peel okay and yeah. then no it's, sew them all together no she says she makes canoes out of oak whoa that's heavy it's goddamn heavy and it's really hard wood so like it takes her a long time uh she's made one no come on don't don't Diminish her abilities. Well, uh, it takes uh, eight weeks no. to, to do uh, one canoe. But they're for mice. Well, she doesn't like to hype that part. Okay. Because it actually takes more skill mm, to make them so tiny small. Yeah. Little canoes. Yeah. yeah. And then, like, how do you keep the mice in the canoe? You know, <laughs> right? It's, 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 well, it, they're probably pretty afraid of water. So oh, yeah. they're, they're deathly afraid of it. Yeah. But you still, like, yeah. It's, it's, it's a thing. 
Next, we have Crystal Hilson. And oh. I don't know where Crystal's from. Oh, she oh, she's from uh, Pretoria in South Africa. Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 What does she do there? Oh, uh, she manufactures um, prosthetic legs. Oh, for, uh, what's his name? Hmm? Pistorius. Oscar Pistorius, yeah. yeah. Well, she probably did. Who, I mean, I don't... who was, really did murder that lady in the oh, bathroom. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Still she needs legs. Yeah, it's it's not a bad thing to well, but now he gets prison legs. I think like, like he doesn't. It's prison legs. Yeah, he's got prison legs. He doesn't have. <laughs> That's <laughs> terrible. Yeah. yeah, she makes higher higher level legs. She makes not prison legs. Wow. Yeah. And lastly, as far as Patreon goes, we have Kylie Hicks hey, Kylie. from Concord, California. Oh, Concord. Concord grapes. Yeah. 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 What did does she plains. work? Does she work in a, vi- a vineyard? Nope. Oh wow. Nope. What does she do? Uh, she works in a winery. Well, it had to be one of the two. Yeah. Well, but I mean, yeah, they're not. It's not the same thing. Like she's not out in the field like, picking picking grapes. And so. what does she do? She's a taster, so she just hammered all the time. No, that's what everybody always assumes. So what she, does she do? Uh, she's a a flavor adder. Yeah. I don't think you need to add flavor to wine. I didn't say it was good wine, Mike. I did not <laughs> the, say the that. The kind with the screw cap that you just throw away? <laughs> she, she, she goes to the container and, and puts like some Mio in there. Oh, yeah. no. Yeah. That's, yeah this, well, this one is great flavored. But you're right? making me hung, uh, thirsty for, uh, <laughs> for waters. <laughs> me too. All right. Well, how about that? Yeah. Um. As far as it looks like we did have one person who gave us some donut money oh, this week. Sweet. And her name is Mallory Good. Oh, thank you, Mallory. Mallory says, Hi guys, long time listener, first time donut money er <laughs> honey for the win. Oh no, we've no. we've talked about her. No. So oh, we, we didn't get any donut money this week. Oh well. But that's fine. That's okay. People are always so generous with us, and they, we're just grateful that anybody absolutely. gives us anything at all absolutely. other than a bad review. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah. We so, digress. Exactly. Thank you so much to our patrons and Donut Money donors, past and present, for your help to keep us doing what we do. If you want to show your support of Dark Poutine, you can subscribe at patreon.com slash darkpoutine or for one-time donation, you can send us donut money at via PayPal at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast@gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find us on iTunes podcast, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio, somewhere in outer space. Oh. Maybe. Oh, that's me. Oh. Check out our website, darkpoutine.com, for show notes and other cool stuff. Give us a like or follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Until next week, when we return, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye-bye, everybody. Goodbye.